0: Welcome to Foragers Radio. Join me, your host, Neil Tenye, as we explore the natural world. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Neil Tenye, and thanks so much for joining us on this beautiful winter day. Uh, Not sure if you're snowed in like I am, but uh, this is a, a great day for me to be inside and catch up on podcasting, so not complaining. So this show is brought to you by ForagersKingdom.com. You can head over there and check out all of our sustainable mushroom extracts that are made from wild foraged mushrooms from our local landscapes that we harvest ourselves. And this time of year, not a bad idea to take mushroom extracts to help support your immunity, reduce um, reduce inflammation. And overall, help you just survive the rest of the winter. So head over to foragerskingdom.com and check it out, and you can use coupon code Radio15 for 15% off your order. Alrighty, so today's show is going to be a fun one. Um, it's with Luke McLaughlin, and um, Luke is really interesting dude. He's been on the show Naked and Afraid three times, I believe. And he has his own survival school um, outside of, like, the Asheville, North Carolina area. He talks about all that in the episode, so I can't recall all the details right now. But, um, yeah, I got acquainted with Luke the same way I get acquainted with everyone in the modern age, and that was on social media. And from the look of his Instagram profile, I was like, wow, this seems like a cool, legit dude. And sure enough, when we started talking, I was like, wow, this is confirmed. Um, So I had a blast chatting with him. We really um, took a deep dive on a lot of amazing topics, in my opinion. Topics like contemplating our own mortality, um, about us as hunters and gatherers biologically, and how we have responsibilities to the natural world because of that. So if you like to ask yourselves painful questions, this is the show for you. No, just kidding. (laughs) We get into a lot of lighter stuff as well, too, and um, it's enjoyable for everyone. But uh, yeah, I don't want to take any more of your time today. Let's get right into the show. So here is my interview with Luke McLaughlin. Hey, guys, welcome back to another episode of Forger's Kingdom. I'm here with my guest today, Luke McLaughlin of the Holistic Survival School. Luke, how's it going, man? Good. How you doing, Neil? I'm doing good. Um, yeah, it's uh fall, start of fall mushroom season. Got a lot of rain, so been scouting out some spots. Yeah. And uh yeah. just good lately. Yeah. Um, me and uh my co-founder Brian, we just went out yesterday and forged a bunch of turkey tail mushrooms hmm um we have a nice spot that we've been looking over for the past couple of years and yeah it was booming um but no my yet that's what we're really after
1: um mm, yeah nice it's been a yeah Been a been a slower year for me i got a good chicken haul at one point but yeah oh, nice hauls, but yeah other than that i'm waiting waiting for some rain here it's been really dry here in asheville so
0: oh cool well not cool but um <laughs> No, I was saying cool because uh you're in the Asheville area. Um, I've I've been there a couple times. My grandfather actually lives like outside of it, like in Black Mountain.
1: Oh yeah, that's just over the mountain for me. I'm up in, in Barnardsville, so a little north of Asheville. But oh, yeah, pretty, cool.
0: Yeah, um, man, it's a cool area. Wow, like I feel like all the people that are into rewilding, foraging, just having a good connection with nature, like yeah, I'm moving to Asheville.
1: Yeah, I kind of say it's like the Mecca of of rewilding or one of the Meccas, I suppose. And (laughs) there's some positive things that come with that. And then sometimes there's some, you know, negative consequences that come with that too. But yeah, I'm super lucky to be in this area with a lot of people interested in different life ways, whether it be rewilding or unschooling your kids or growing your own food or wild foraging. Um, There's a lot of people here in in that world for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's so cool. Um, Yeah, like my my grandpa has like a piece of land and he grows some things he has some chickens and like on the way there we like go up this mountain but there's like a natural spring just kind of like coming down from the mountain and somebody like piped it and tubed it
1: oh yeah is that over on route nine over in that part of the
0: world uh could be it was pretty popular i don't know the the roots Uh there um too much and it was a while ago so um but yeah it was like it was so cool we just like stopped pulled over drank some water um i love that so that's really cool
1: I feel I, I have, I'm lucky and very, very blessed to be able to tend 20 acres here in, in Barnardsville. And it's, yeah, the the land I have, has we have three springs where it's just water is flowing out of the earth. And some days when I feel a little freaked out about the state of the world, I just go to sit next to my spring and I'm like, at least I have water coming <laughs> out of my mountain. Like, I'm just so lucky to have that and how rare that is to have, you know, drinkable water in nature these days. It's pretty wild.
0: Totally. Totally. Um, yeah, same. I, I have one up here that I've been drinking from from like 10 years and yeah, every time I go, it's just, it, it's just a beautiful experience to like pull you back into nature. And, um, I, I used to live in New York city for many years. Um, and like I was, I was kind of like the black sheep of New York city. Cause like everyone was like, Oh, like New York city's got the best tap water. I'm like, no dude, I like go up to Pennsylvania, like where I grew up and there's this natural spring. And I like, bring five five gallon jugs with me and then i like lug it back to my apartment and like i have a water cooler is what i drink and they're like uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> i'm just like what right. do you say, dude?
1: <laughs> the best tap water is that like that's like a pretty low bar i would imagine <laughs>
0: like, yeah i mean out of their tap water in new york yeah city. yeah like you go to the farmers markets in the city and like there'd be like representatives like touting the tap water and stuff like that but what they don't tell you is the five different treatment facilities that it comes from, you know, after it's been collected from a reservoir or a natural source, but. Oh, for sure. Yeah. That's a whole nother topic. (laughs) Um, Cool, man. Yeah. So um, I've been following your Instagram page for a while. Uh, You do so many cool things like ancestral lifeway practices, survival skills, some rewilding. I really am excited to get into it. Um, but before we do, yeah, what's what's your formal introduction? How did you get involved with all this cool stuff?
1: Oh, man, yeah. Um, well, my formal, yeah, what is my official title? I guess, I guess <laughs> I'm guess i a wilder coach. Sometimes I say I just help people remember what it means to be human is one way I like to describe it. Um, you know, help people live in reciprocity um, with the land, help people connect to themselves, each other, and the land a little bit more. Um but yeah, I got started. Um, both my parents, both my parents were teachers. Um, and I always grew up just being like, oh, I'm a teacher. like you know I was just around people that were teaching all the time. Um, I had really great mentors, um, particularly male mentors in, in coaching and playing sports growing up. Um, and so I had been, I initially got into education. so I was a for a short while, I was like a ninth grade biology teacher. Uh, in Michigan, and was teaching, you know, about ribosomes and cell nucleus and <laughs> all these things. And I eventually was just like, "This is not what I sh- need to be teaching, you know, to these kids." Um, I developed a relationship with these kids through coaching and teaching, and they would come to me with like really heavy issues, like you know, they didn't know how emotions work, they didn't know how to feed themselves a healthy diet, they didn't know, you know, like their family was going through really intense trauma, you know, and my legal job was to teach them about ribosomes <laughs> and i was just like this is so stupid and i literally could have lost my job if i had tried to give them any advice or try to help coach through them through their you know difficulties so i finally was just like i can't teach this anymore this is ridiculous like there's more important things that i need to teach this world and um i eventually yeah stopped teaching and found a job in wilderness therapy so i worked at a program in utah where i worked with at risk teenagers um and basically the teenagers would be in the desert for two to three months at a time and my job as a staff was to keep them alive one so like you know 110 degree days in the summer and like sometimes negative 20 degrees at night in the winter um and my job is to keep them alive but also teach them ancestral skills so this program i worked for had um, the skills were the way to understand our own patterns and understand our own tendencies. So my job became, you know, teaching kids how to make fire with sticks. Like if you wanted to cook on the fire that night, you got to make a fire with sticks. Um, you had to make your own backpack. So our backpacks were made of sticks, you know? Um, so through years of doing that, I really like one, you know, learned a lot of skills and got to teach a lot. And that was a blast and use the skills as a way of of a mirror for us to understand more about ourselves. Um, But also um, I saw how powerful nature was in, in healing folks, you know? So, um, so, you know, the kids would be a different person in like a week because they were just away from all the bullshit, you know, they were just away from society and culture and their, their friends, you know, and just like, Oh, like getting more in touch with who they are and where they're coming from. And so yeah, since then that was over 10 years ago. Now I was just, I dedicated my life to helping people stay connected to the natural world and help people heal through that connection. Um, so, so yeah, so now I run holistic survival school. Um, my main program is called deep remembering, which is a 10 month immersion program for adults. So I basically took all the skills I teach and I say, all right, we're doing all of these, you know, in one big chunk. So every month, um, about 15 to 20 adults meet in the woods and we learn a skill and we learn the emotional connection to that skill every month as well. So we'll like, you know, tan a hide and talk about how we transform deer hides, but also how we transform pain and grief in our lives. So, um, it's basically wilderness therapy for adults. (laughs) Some, one of my students this year described it as therapy combined with adult summer camp. So, um, so yes, that's what I do for a career now.
0: Wow, there before adult summer camp. Where do I sign up? <laughs> <laughs> Holisticsurvivalschool.com. <laughs> wow, that that's really cool, man. Um yeah, I I so much of what you said I resonate with. I feel like um yeah, in covering in, in like facing my own traumas as a child and you know, the twists and turns of life that I've gone through like I definitely see that connection with nature and healing and I, I think it's really powerful and I'm always saying like yeah, like you know, we live in this hyper competitive society um, mm-hmm. where you're always trying to outdo someone for a higher pay, for a better position, mm-hmm. for resources. And it kind of makes you feel like this isolated being. But mm-hmm. you go out into nature and you start to observe it and learn about it in whatever capacity. And you start to realize that it exists in cooperation. And it's mm-hmm. this nice refresh refresh button, you know, like, oh, what I learned here, I can bring into the modern world. Um so I, I think this is really awesome. And um yeah, I'm just kind of curious <clears throat> when you uh, were, were working out in Utah in the wilderness therapy kind of setting, did you, uh, first of all, like what, I, I know you said that um kind of what you were teaching in biology in Michigan wasn't cutting it, but like, when was it clear to you that like, oh yes, I want to get involved in some sort of like nature wilderness thing and like, mm-hmm was it something you were already cultivating in your life? Did you show up there like ready to go or was it things that you learned from working and being there?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great question. Um, I grew up in, you know, in kind of a small town. My dad was a sportsman. So my dad was a big hunter and and fisherman. Um, So I grew up doing a lot of that. I did a lot of fishing, some hunting, um, but it wasn't like, you know, I remember (laughs) actually, this is like one of my biggest, like, wounds not you know biggest maybe but it's a wound i have is what i've noticed like a a sacred wound of watching my dad handle animals and i remember being really scared as a like little kid just like watching my dad like you know good an animal or something like that and kind of i remember my dad kind of treating animals with like some flavor of just what i viewed as disrespect as a kid you know and just kind of being like freaked out and like kind of doing it in like you know, um, a rough kind of way. And so for, I remember like, that's been a thing that I've been really cultivating now is like, now that I've gotten back into hunting and hunting with my own bows and arrows is like, how do I do this in a, in a way that honors the animal's life and an aunt way that honors the sacred, you know, act of hunting. Um, so that's been one journey, but to answer your question, yeah, like I, so a little bit, you know, but then when I remember actually like being a teacher and looking back, I laugh at it now, I was like 25 and I was like, I can't quit my job. Like I'm so old now. Like I couldn't start over. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, like what, what a ridiculous thing. So yeah, I kind of was new to a lot of the skills. So ancestral skills were very new to me. I'd never seen anyone make fire with sticks or anything like that. Um, and so I, yeah, I kind of went into it with that common block that I hear a lot of people say about changing their lives is that sunken cost fallacy of like, I can't start now. I've already spent so much of my life doing X, Y, or Z, you know? Um, but yeah, and so but with that job, it was great to cultivate those skills and start learning those skills and um, got me plugged into a lot of different avenues of of ways to connect to nature um, that I use now.
0: Yeah. Wow. Very cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, so interesting uh, what you said about, you know, your dad and hunting, because I think, um, you know, overall in like the health and wellness community, you always hear people like rising to the occasion, being more sustainable, being more spiritual with the choices that, that they make and the things that they put in their body. And it's always like more plant-based, more uh, vegan, more vegetarian, more, you know, what have you. But um, I feel like, in, in hunting yes there's people that could be a little more like brutish in their approach and that's maybe antiquated but yeah. i think what's resurfacing right now is this like you know hunting too can be sp- a spiritual practice so um i i like this conversation a lot because i think it's like very neglected but i mean yeah. um yeah in your kind of practice now or like things if you learned um just like a 360 view how how is hunting how can hunting be a spiritual practice Oh God,
1: we how much time we got? Like it's like, you know, (laughs) (laughs) this is this is my jam, you know, because I, I let's see, where do I start? How is it spiritual? I mean everything can be spiritual. I guess I want to start with that. Like there's the potential, like I know when I was at, uh, when I was younger, you know, I'm working on this like black and white, more spiritual, less spiritual. Like, I don't want to come off that way. Like I think anything can be done spiritually or intentionally. And I think there's beauty in all things and, you know, it's, it's, it's all good. So want to put my uh, pretentious side to the side or put it <laughs> right, on, right so on. I don't, don't come off a certain way, you know, but, um, yeah, but for me like I remember killing my first buck and just like with a compound bow and I like just sat up in a tree in Michigan and a buck came in and I like shot it through the heart and it was, like went 20 yards and died and I was like, "Oh, okay, cool." Like it was like I remember kind of being like that was really easy and I didn't feel like I earned it, you know, like it was just like I just kind of did it and it worked, you know, and I was really lucky um and so from that moment on i was like i don't want to do it this way again like i was like it was i was really certain when it happened i was like i'm going to make my own stuff and so um that started this 10-year journey of making my own learning how to make my own bows learning how to make my own arrows learning how to flint nap my own stone points for the arrows you know and like learning how to hunt by reading the landscape so hunting with my own stuff has added this like it's like I'm hunting all year, right? Like it's instead of just hunting a few days in the fall or something like that, it's like, Oh, I need to hone my, my bow, you know, and I need to hone my craft and it's been 10 years. Like, and I'm still just like just improving my, my arrows and my bow um, to make them, you know, like, actually take an animal's life very quickly and efficiently and so that has like extended my hunting it's like not just like this one thing i do in the fall but it's like throughout my life i'm like looking for the right tree to make a new bow to you know um but it's a dedication really it's a devotion to doing it the hard way because it's so much harder (laughs) with primitive stuff and and so it's like a sacrifice in a way of like i would have killed you know 20 more deer. If I had a compound bow, than how many I've killed with my primitive bow. And so it's like the sacrifice of my ego, if you will, of like, yeah, I'm going to kill less animals. But for me, it's like the manner in which I do it. It's the, it's the journey of getting there, not the destination. Um, so that's one, you know, just like the sacrifice of not killing as many animals, not having such an advantage over the animals. Um, And with that, like, everything has to be just right, you know, like, if I always say, like, if I'm 99.9% doing everything right in hunting, it's still a miss, you know, because I have to, like, be able to read the landscape, know where the deer is going to be, sit at the right spot, cover my scent, you know, have the arrows fletch perfectly, take a good shot, track the animal well, like, hunting demands like perfection. And so every time I've come up against adversity or like failure as a hunter, it's just like, okay, like, what is this telling me? So it's like a beautiful mirror to these places that I need to improve upon. Um, And until I reach that, like, just like everything's just in alignment, um, it's probably not going to work. And that's what I've learned. And so it's a way of hunting as a way of connecting to myself, connecting to my process and my craft connecting to the animals as I'm crafting a Flint, you know, a Flint arrowhead. I'm like, Oh, it's my duty as a hunter to craft this in such a beautiful way that I could take this animal's life efficiently and and as best I can. Um, and that's really interesting. Like when I weave a willow basket, I'm like, whatever, this is just for me. And it doesn't have to do with pain and death. But when I make an arrow, there's like a responsibility that comes from that to craft it in such a way. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, all of those for me are deeply spiritual of, of connecting to the land, reading the landscape, honing my, my craft and um doing it the hard way. So.
0: Yeah. Very beautiful. Very beautiful. Um, yeah. Something that really stuck out to me, what you were saying is like, yeah, hunting is not just, you know, showing up at a tree stand, hanging out, waiting for, you know, the animal to come. Um, the same thing with like foraging mushrooms or plants. It's like, mm-hmm you know, just take a walk through the woods and, you know, maybe you'll get lucky, maybe, probably you won't. But um to kind of participate in hunting, whether it's plants, fungi, animals, like you need to kind of, you need to learn the ecology of the environment, right? And you need to learn the ecology of the animal. And I think in that process, like you, you start to, that's where you're, you start to cultivate a connection with nature, right? So like, yeah so I, get, I could talk to something similar like when i first started learning mushroom foraging you know i was um i just went out in the woods and i started looking for stuff i'm like oh cool there's this this, that but like i never found what i was actually looking for right mm-hmm. but then i started learning that oh like mushrooms have special connections with certain trees so if i want to find chaga don't look on the oak trees or the hemlock trees you know go to where the birch trees are if you want to find chanterelles yeah go to the to the oak trees mm-hmm. and so on and um over time you start to really see this, yeah, this bigger picture of, of nature. Um yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like that, that's that nails it. It's like I've heard it described as like it doesn't matter what thread you pull on, right? It's like this thread off of a blanket. It's like, oh, I'm gonna go hunting. Okay, we'll start pulling on that thread, and then you realize, oh, that thread's connected to this and that's connected to this. And so, like, there's just infinite, it's your entryway into the interconnectedness of nature, and it's just an infinite world after that. And so it's like Oh, the deer in my area, for example, like only the bucks only rub their antlers, you know, during before rut and during rut on striped maples, cedars and white pines. And I don't know what it is. I don't know why. It's still a mystery to me. But I'm like, okay, so when I'm in the woods, I'm looking for those tree species. So here I am connecting to I know the tree species on my land because I hunt. And I know and I'm sitting there and I'm watching the squirrels and I'm watching the chipmunks and I'm like, oh, they're doing this right now because this is, you know, and all of a sudden, like, the amount of knowledge that I've gained through sitting and hunting, you know, just observing is like, it's, it's through the roof. I think it's more than any naturalist that's a non-hunter, I I would, I would bet, um, just because you just spend so much time in the woods tracking and paying attention and most of hunting is, not you're not shooting, you're just sitting and waiting and stalking and, and doing a whole bunch of other observations. Um, so yeah.
0: Yeah, no, no, totally. Um I I actually had last year my first hunting experience. Um, my best friend and co-founder of our company actually he, he comes his whole family's been hunting for generations. Mm-hmm. And uh you, they have like a cabin on this property that they have, and inside the cabin is just like deer antler. You know mounts that go back to like 1940, and I'm just like, mm-hmm. wow, yeah. And um, yeah. And I, I was really curious, you know, on this topic, and I was like, oh, I want to participate, but um, I don't, I don't own a gun. I don't know how to use one. I was a Boy Scout one time. I had a rifle merit badge, but that was when I was like 12. Um, so I, it felt a little overwhelming to just like jump right in. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah. I just went to observe. I helped like push deer out and everything, but um, yeah, it was first of all, I was so shocked that when I it was with my friend's brother and he got a buck and I helped him, you know, break it down and and process it and things like that. And the biggest thing that shocked me is like how not shocked I was like, Mm. there's like some like fiber in my body that was like, this is normal, you know, Mm. and, and, um, and this is okay. And, um, so I like helped him and, you know, I thought the process was like really eye opening, and, um, I think um too, part of part of the conversation about like, you know, reintroducing spirituality back in hunting is like we're kind of ha- hardwired for this, right? And totally. you can you can maybe say that um the in the app in growing up in the modern world and not being exposed to um taking an animal's life and understanding on a deep level what that means mm-hmm. and how your actions not only affect you but the environment you live in, aka the the natural world right um you're controlling the helping control the population so there's less um grazing on plants so the plants could thrive better the fungi can thrive better right it's all interconnected um not being exposed to that might set us on the wrong course in what we focus on in our daily lives right like um i, I you know i've heard other anthropologists and other books i've read kind of describing how like capitalism covers it all up almost right like we're uh, just yeah. we're just focused on buying the next thing to kind of distract us from the ultimate faith which is that someday too we will die and i know we're going <laughs> to deep down the rabbit hole here but do it. <laughs> I, th- I think this is a really healthy conversation and i hope people listening uh, feel the same way but um yeah in in you know being exposed to to death helps you contemplate your own and help helps you understand where you fit into the totality of the world and that is a better guide for your actions in your daily life rather than just kind of chasing chasing something until you die i don't know if you'll say totally yeah i
1: mean i work with this all the time i sometimes you know just talk in my program a lot about how much death has informed my work both like in my personal life people you know my my father's you know has passed now and Um, how important it is to deal with our, to deal with death and darkness and winter and cold and all the things that we avoid, you know, like one way I've described our culture is like, it's an incomplete circle. Like if you see the seasons, you know, all four seasons as a complete circle, you know, like where does culture want us like spring, summer, right? Like (laughs) produce a whole bunch, stay young, you know, like grass is always green, always be on vacation, only feel happiness, you know. And that's not how nature works. It's got, you got to complete the cycle. And it's really interesting to me how like domestication keeps us in that spring, summer era, right? How do we keep fruit trees from producing? You keep trimming them back. And the best growth is like two to five years. That's when you get the fruits, you know, how did we get dogs? Well, we took wolves and we kept them young, right? We keep them in that spring, summer. We don't let them be wild, right? We, We keep them babies. And in a lot of ways, I think Culture does the same thing to adult humans as we stay young, we stay like children, you know, and we don't fully take care of ourselves and are not um, autonomous for our, our health, our food, you know, our water. Um, we we try, we send that over to the the governments or whatever, say, oh, you take care of you you be in charge of my body and my health. Um, so yeah, so hunting is an amazing way to connect to that aspect, that darkness. And to that, like darkness isn't bad, right? I'm not saying darkness isn't bad, but that's how a lot of people interpret it as death is bad. Darkness is bad. Um, And while really it's just, it's nature that's part of this whole cycle. So the more, you know, and that's my biggest like pushback that a lot of people have is, you know, taking an animal's life. And I'm like, well, I'm a consumer. I, I cannot photosynthesize. Therefore, I must take some form of life. Even if it was just like me living, you know, living off of fruits and like, you know, the fruiting bodies of fungi. Well, that's great. But maybe someone else in the forest would have eaten that. And, um, you know, in gardens and farms, like they destroyed entire ecosystems to put that farm in, even even if it is permaculture, you know, like (laughs) here in Asheville, like I'm trying to grow some of my own food on my land. And it's just amazing how much death I have to create in order for life to live. Like, I want pears. Okay, well, I got to, like keep the deer off my plants when they're young. I got to keep the fungus off of them. I got to cut back all the other trees that are growing there. Like farming is violent too, you know, like, because nature is always wanting to reach equilibrium and balance. And so it's amazing if you want life and you only want to take that sustenance in for humans, well, then you have to deny everyone else taking in that sustenance. So, um, yeah, so for me, it's like, we have to create death and it's our choice and how closely connected we want to be with that death that that almost grief of being a human like no matter what i do i have to take life in some way you know and there is like a grief there of just like yeah i wish i could photosynthesize and not have to do that but that's not the way it is so the more we can get in touch with it the more we can be honest with it the less it runs the show from the shadows so it's like yeah, keep it in front of me, my own death, the death of the world, the darkness, the hard stuff. Then I can kind of be a little more aware of it as opposed to it running the show kind of behind the curtain because I don't want to touch it or talk about it.
0: Yeah, super deep, super beautiful. Um yeah, you know, just the amount of grief I feel every time I like cut the grass on my lawn, it like it pains me. Sure, yeah. Funny story. <laughs> you know, I, I live in kind of like a rural suburb in northeastern Pennsylvania. Uh and i don't own my house i rent it um and most of the people live in my community like have a lot of free time because they're retired um so they they really love taking care of their lawns like they (laughs) have their little spray bottle of like you know glyphosate and killing the crabgrass and the Mm -hmm. weed whacking and stuff like that Uh and um me If I don't cut the grass, like my neighbors will like call my landlord and like complain. And then my landlord's like, come on, Neil, you know, you gotta, but I'm like, oh, but it's so beautiful. All these mushrooms are popping out and there's snakes uh-huh. and there's berries and it brings the birds and they eat the worms. And then now there's owls and there's hawks. And it's like an ecosystem. If I don't cut the grass, an ecosystem literally <laughs> pops up overnight. But then I, you know, I start running the mower and it's like, oh. I just ran over a patch of jack-o'-lantern mushrooms. Oh, I just ran over, you know, all these snake berries. Oh, sorry. I, ju- I just literally killed a snake and I didn't know it because it was mm-hmm. in the tall grass, you know? Um, so I I um, I always like joke about this concept of like re- uh, rewilding your lawn, you know, for sure. And I, and I actually heard people talking about it on like NPR a couple of weeks ago. And I was like, oh, my God, it's so funny. Um, but um, yeah, just just what you said, I think that's just like a funny example. Um, yeah, just even cutting my grass, I, ha- I have like deep, <laughs> deep problems with this. little traumatizing <laughs> every time I do it. Totally. But to to back up to what you you said, I think you said the magic word here, that I that I'm happy to say, which is domestication. Right. Yeah. The the analogy used of a wolf to a dog was very beautiful, and I don't know if I'm gonna blow some minds here, but like we humans, uh, we are a domesticated version of human, right? Like for sure. If, if the wolf is the wild version of the domesticated dog, it's like hunter-gatherers were the wild version of domesticated humans, right? Um, and um, the funny thing is, too, is like, well, yes, we, we domesticated animals, chickens, cows, dogs, cats, right? But like, who domesticated us? Do you, do you ever think about that? Sometimes I like think about this, like how <laughs> did we end up auto-domesticating ourselves? Yeah, our
1: totally. Economy? That's a great question. Um, the two that come to my mind that make me giggle a bit, because I'm not, I'm not, you know, I, these are just theories. I don't really... Like, well, I guess first thing I'll say is like domestication isn't necessarily bad, right? And especially mm-hmm. in rewilding, it's like hey, you're a domesticated human. It's like the worst insult you could do. Of, you know, and it's like there's a lot of benefits to, to domestication. Um, you know, like there's a lot more peace. There's a lot, you know, gen like, well, well, like besides like wars and all the things that can come with really big civilizations, right? Like, I want to separate domestication and civilization because, for example, um, chimps. Um, are a little more warlike and aggressive than their cousins, the bonobos or pygmy chimpanzees. The pygmy chimps, if you've heard of bonobos, right, they're like kind of the hippies, quote unquote, of the chimp world. They like rub their genitals together to like (laughs) deal with conflict. Like they like, they're not necessarily having sexual intercourse, but like they are like, that's their way of bonding is connecting and like calming down de-escalating situations. So there's some evidence that the bonobos Are self-domesticated that they've actually they're like chimpanzees but they have more childlike features than regular chimpanzees and that there's some evidence saying that well actually it's just a self-fulfilling like thing that in order to reduce conflict they've stayed more um, infant-like more younger and that reduces conflict and aggression so like do i love peace hell yeah. Do I love like ease? For sure. You know, so there is some potential evidence showing that self domestication is possible. And that kind of makes sense when we our world gets so big, like person to person, there's very little like conflict, like millions of people packed into a city like Tokyo or New York City, and like, very few people are fist fighting, like, it happens don't get me wrong but imagine doing that with like wolves or you know or older like there'd be potentially a lot more conflict so domestication not necessarily bad maybe we self-domesticated but the other option that sometimes blow my minds is the um like gut bacteria and gut fungus that we often, through eating our diet of grains and like dairies and all the things that can get out of balance, when we get like candida and stuff in our bodies, that actually changes our brain chemistry. And so, some I've heard the theory of that like wheat and the fungus that eats wheat actually is like a mind controlling zombie, <laughs> and it <laughs> is, is literally changing our brain chemistry. So we want more sugar, and we want more you know grains, and we want more you know cheeses and stuff. And so then we destroyed the earth to grow more so that we could feed our true master, which is the fungus that's <laughs> living in our gut. And I'm like, whoa, like that's pretty far. But it kind of makes sense of like, why else would we destroy, you know, our planet to such a degree? And it's because we like sugar a lot.
0: <laughs> that That is so hilarious that you just said that because like literally two days ago, I was just thinking about the same thing. Oh really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was funny. Like years ago, I, I used to listen to like a biohacking podcast, and I I remember like who was on the show, but they were talking about this conspiracy theory that you know, yes, like our, our even our consciousness is just the product of like the gut bacteria inside of oh, us, like man, controlling <laughs>
1: the true god
0: is our yeah bacteria. yeah like everything we do is is based on yeah this bacteria they're actually pulling the strings and i thought it's funny and and yeah that's that's very entertaining i mean yeah sure makes a lot of sense I mean,
1: some of the first life on this planet so it's like mm, yeah makes sense. i guess we could just be you know yeah product of their existence in some way
0: yeah so that's why we got to take probiotics you know we got to get the good ones inside of us that's so funny <laughs> yeah. How do we know it's the good one? <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, that was really cool. what You said about auto domestication. You're, you're so right. Like in this realm of rewilding and ancestral life ways, like, yeah, it's, it's kind of like, sometimes it, it's easy to, to get out of balance and just see, just romanticize. Like what happened before us is like, that was mm-hmm. ideal. And like, what's happening now is like, not ideal, but it's mm-hmm. probably a balance of the two, right? So, um, yeah, I never heard before or thought about like, yeah, like the the benefits of domestication or auto domestication and, and exactly how you're saying, like, yeah, makes people more peaceful. That, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, um, totally. Yeah. So that's, um, yeah, pretty mind blowing. And um, some
1: real actual articles out there, too. I'm just kind of like, you know, I'm a paraphraser, so people are probably going to be like, oh, that's not quite what the studies are or something like that. But uh, there is, you know, the biologist in me was like, oh, there actually is like some study out there that, that was looking at that. So interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah. And yeah, kind of before we uh, started recording here, we were we briefly talked about our shared um, interest in Arthur Haynes, right? Mm-hmm. He's a, a plant taxonomist and also I think like a citizen's anthropologist. And um, I read a bunch of his books and yeah, he kind of, you know outlines i think in a very holistic way like okay um yes hunter gatherers lived these were their biological norms right and when you compare them to our biological norms we do fall short right so mm-hmm. um something that really struck me in his book um um what was it called the new a new uh, a new earth or a new life way something like that mm-hmm. um Something that really shocked me is, is that in the 1940s, before, like, you know, indigenous cultures around the world were on their last legs, um, there was a lot of scientists that kind of traveled traveled the globe to study them. And what they did virtually see is that in all of these indigenous cultures that still were connected to their indigenous lifeways and their indigenous diets, like metabolic diseases like cancer, diabetes, were virtually non-existent. Right. And that's based on data. and fact, it's not it's not romanticizing. Right. Right. But now because we eat all the wheat and the grains and the bacteria control us. Right. I'm just kidding. That was a joke. But But yeah, you know, we're um, us as modern day humans, we're actually still biologically hardwired as our indigenous hunter gatherers. right? So our diets are very deficient, right? Wild food is up to five times more nutrient-dense than cultivated foods because they grow in a more holistic, rich environment with great topsoil. Um, So that's why we're always supplementing with different things is because, you know, there's a deficiency in, in our normal diets. And that's kind of what's causing our metabolic diseases to some degree, you know? And we haven't even gotten into like the radiation exposure from like Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and all that. But Um, yeah, I, I, I think learning this kind of stuff just kind of can help you point, get pointed in the right direction and say like, oh yeah, you know, I can incorporate some ancestral things into my daily life to make this situation a little better.
1: Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I think, um, food and the, you know, grains and the food that our government subsidizes to grow more of are actually are really good for mass populations and supporting more people and not so good for the individual and bone records throughout history have shown that that when humans switch you know to agri more of an agricultural sedentary agricultural lifestyle um, their bone density and their teeth decay you know their jaws get smaller like a lot of things happen and um food is it yeah wild food is you know, brings that vital force, brings that life, brings that medicine into our bodies that we don't get. Because once again, kind of staying in that, like, oh, we stay in the spring and the summer part of the wheel of the year, you know, we just want the tastiest foods, right? So we like, oh, this celery has more medicine in it. Well, what does medicine taste like? Well, it doesn't taste as good, right? Like every time you taste a food that's really strong, it's like, well, that has chemical components in it that are medicine, you know? And But if you sell them to thousands of people, those people, just because we, once again, are maybe being ruled by fungi and the gut (laughs) bacteria, are like, buy the really sweet celery. That's really good. You know, that's tastier. So then over the years, the farmers breed, you know, the sweeter celeries and the ones that stay longer on the shelves and they end up losing that vital medicine um, because we, we breed it out of them, basically, another form of domestication. So- yeah, these our diets are a huge part of, of our unhealth. And the way I like to phrase it is, you know, if you want to be healthy, do human things. Right. And let's like, if you had a dog, you have a dog and he lives, you know, you have a, a bloodhound, let's say, and the bloodhound lives in an apartment in New York city. That bloodhound, its DNA is built to do bloodhound things. It's meant to sniff a lot and it's meant to go run around to the woods and chase animals. That's what it's bred to do. And if you don't allow that dog to do that, what's going to happen? It's going to have a th- mental illness and physical illness pretty quickly. It might get neurotic. It might overgroom, It might tear up your couch. Excuse me. It might, you know, just it's just going to be a pain in your ass because it's just not doing what it's meant to do. And the same goes with humans. The more we can live in alignment with our ancestral DNA, the healthier we're going to be naturally. And the more we deny those life ways, the more unhealthy we're going to be. And the same goes with like animals in zoos. You go to a zoo where chimpanzees have never been neurotic and depressed in the wild. And because that chimpanzee's in the zoo and it's not getting its needs met, physically, emotionally, whatever, socially, um, it starts developing neuroses. It's pretty, you know, it's pretty quick and it's pretty noticeable. Um, where I think the tricky part, you know, when I say, okay, let's just do human things, we're so detached from our ancestral life ways in most culture, you know, today, that we don't even know what human things. What does that even mean, right? There's like cartoonish caricatures that people think of what that means. But where I like to work in my, you know, in my immersion program is really helping people to get clear of what that actually looks like, because it's easy to go be like, oh, I need to make fire with sticks. Like that's an ancestral skill for sure. hundred percent. Totally right. Oh, food. Like I need to eat more wild food. 100%. That's part of, that's part of humanity. 100%. But then the things we often neglect are like emotional, like ability to express emotions. We forget the village right? Like that we all, all of our ancestors grew up in with elders that took, you know, mentored you and rites of passage, right? That like at different life stages. And so there's like all of a sudden this cultural world that I truly believe is a huge part of why we are so unwell in our current world. Um, Is is food a part of it? 100%. If you don't have good food, you're not going to be able to heal. You're not going to have that vital force in your body. But there's also this, I feel like, more neglected side of rewilding that is more about culture repair and social and um, village life that people, I think, are starting to understand is, like, so essential to what it means to be human that we need to rewild that, too. Um, The problem with that is it's a lot harder because me going in the woods to learn how to make fire with sticks. Okay, that's on me. Cool, right? But, like, to find a village of people and to find elders and to have, like... People taking care of each other and, you know, living seasonally, like that's a big, big project. And that's going to take many, 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 you know, hundreds and hundreds of years for us to try and rebuild that. Um, But that's kind of the mission that I'm on is helping people understand how our emotional health, our spiritual health, our connection to the land, our social health is connected to our physical health as well.
0: Yeah. Wow, man. Hit the nail on the head there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I I would agree with everything you said yeah and, and not only being hardwired to eat you know or to to be hunter gatherer by bio, hunter gatherer biologically like we're also hardwired to live in community right so like yeah but like we're
1: hardwired to be animists and we're hardwired to have a spiritual connection to the land and we're hardwired to like you know all these like sing songs while we're working like all these little things that you know just get lost through the cracks and they're slowly coming back but it's that's that's what humans do across the world. Every, every human dances, right? Like, just dancing. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, how to dance and dance with our friends and dance in, like, rhythms and dance for the season and, like, talk to our ancestors. Like, every culture around the world did that. So, it's like, obviously, it's important. And if we do it, we'll probably be healthier.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's so true. And, um, yeah, you know, what's funny is, um, I think, too, like, in our Western culture, like, you know we we are a very individualistic society and like even the way we view family or if we think like oh yeah i'm really close to my parents if you compare mm-hmm. that from like people in south america let's say mm-hmm. it's mind blowing um so mm-hmm. my my wife she's peruvian right okay. and um my dad is from bolivia which is right next to peru so mm-hmm. i kind of i grew up with this very like latin american culture that was like very gushy and my mom's side of the family is like German. So it's like very, just joking, like a little, little colder, you know what I mean? Totally. (laughs) Um, And I, and I lived in South America for six months. uh, One time I go there regularly, but like, every time I go back, like, it's always such an adjustment because like, yeah, like my wife's family, like her, her roots are from the indigenous people of Peru. Right. And even when her parents come visit us or when I go down there, it's like, they all revive their lives like around each other it's like one can't exist without the other and like it's so funny because like yeah if if, when i lived in california and i'd come home to visit my parents it was like oh yeah i'll spend like half the day with them you know say what's up like and then they go to bed and i'm like okay i'm gonna go i'm gonna hang out with my friends you know it's like that feels like so fulfilling to me like oh i got Mm -hmm. to visit my parents but like with my wife it's like she loves to just spend the whole day and talk and eat meals together like and and it's like i'm always just like wow like the connection that they have is like so mind-blowing and i and i relate it to yeah like this was they're closer to their indigenous life way than you know we are as as you know white westerners it's like it might be hundreds of generations before we reach that like that seed of like this this was our indigenous culture you know but for them it's two generations removed you know yeah. So recent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's always so mind blowing. So, yeah, you, even I, I think community is is the biggest missing piece in all this. Mm. Um, So that's so cool that you have a school to explore all this stuff. Yeah, and, totally. So, Too yeah, cool. I, I think that, you know, and everything we said, I'm sure so many people listening are like, OK, give me a tall glass of this Kool-Aid. I want to jump in. Sign <laughs> me up. So I I know there's, you could teach them how to make fire with sticks, but like if someone wants to start cultivating the things that we were talking about here, like where's, where's the entry point, like in, in relation to like what you do with your school, kind of what's the beginner course, I, I would just like to learn some more about that.
1: Yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot of avenues, but you know, it's kind of like that thread in the blanket. It's like, just start pulling on one and it'll get you there, you know, but one phrase I use a lot in my program is is follow, follow the juice. So follow what, what you're excited about. And if it's primitive skills, great. Like that's how I started like I. Didn't get
0: Alrighty guys, take a quick breath because I just wanted to share a really great course that Luke has coming up at his school. It's called Deep Remembering and it's a 10-month immersion program that takes place outside of Asheville, North Carolina. The program consists of ancestral earth skills, community building, and trauma-informed healing, and goes from March to December. Students come together and learn what it feels like to deeply connect with themselves, each other, and their landscape. If you want to take a deep look at the course offerings, then head over to HolisticSurvivalSchool.com slash immersion. I'll be sure to include this link in the show notes. Alrighty, let's get back to the show.
1: So follow what, what you're excited about. And if it's primitive skills, great. Like, that's how I started. Like, I didn't give a rat's ass about culture, or repair, or spirituality. When I first started, I was like, I just want to make fire with sticks and look like a badass, you know, <laughs> and I stayed on that path long enough that I'm like, oh, it's more about that. Like, I had to learn the trees to learn what fire, I, how I can make fire. And it just kind of kept going. So don't just just act right. Don't don't act. Don't worry about doing it right or doing the right thing. But just keep moving towards what excites you and what keeps you alive in this world. Um, but you know, I think what comes to my mind is studying ancestral lifeways in your region. So every region is so beautiful and amazing, or it was at one point, right? There are only what's the phrase from Wendell Berry? There are only sacred places or desecrated places or something like that. Like every place is beautiful. Even if you live in like Ohio, you know, like there is a beautiful ecosystem there once was there that you can kind of find how people connected to it. So whether it be through indigenous wisdom of, of your region or. Or even, you know, I live in, you know, Southern Appalachia and it's like, I go talk to my 95 year old neighbor, you know, and she's like lived here her whole life. Her grandpa, you know, she was, a, her family were bear hunters. You know, they, they've been tending this orchard in a, in this valley for this whole, like for over a hundred years. So even learning those life ways, um, you know, there's a lot of knowledge in the last hundred years that's been lost. So study what's been done and what, why your region is special, you know, like, you're on the coast like really connect to the ocean like i'm so jealous i live in the mountains i I don't get that you know um so that's kind of one is is learning how people made a living and how people connected here um so you don't have to reinvent the wheel that's kind of one place to start um and then beyond that you know it's like there's also a blessing sometimes I feel really sad and I feel a lot of grief about feeling like more of a cultural orphan when it comes to these skills where like I didn't have someone teaching me these skills and I'm just like, you know, um quote, you know, like a European mutt, you know, like British Isles, like uh, okay, that like, can and there's culture there. Uh, but I'm not connected to it. And so there's a grief there of like, damn, this sucks. I wish I had songs that were passed on to me and I wish that I had, you know, this culture but there's also a gift in it. And that gift is that I have a blank slate and I can start new culture. I can start new traditions. I can start new rituals. Um, you know, for example, my nephew who who's now 18, you know, but when he turned, you know, 12 or 13, we, my brother and I did a rite of passage. We're like, we're, you know, we're kind of, we're doing this, you know, like, and now I have like, I do more work with boys' rights of passage work and we have more of a community that's into it. But at the time it was like, this is the best we got. And so we did it and we wrote some songs and we're like, this is our family song now. And this is what we're going to sing. And this is our, we're going to pick a plant. This is our sacred plant now, like, you know, because we connect to it. Like, so there's almost like a, a beauty in having a blank canvas too, of just starting somewhere and just, just kind of fake it till you make it or You know, the other way of saying that is like embody it until it's sustainable. (laughs) Just kind of like practice it until it feels like it's a real thing. um, Because I think people just have like it just started that way. At one point, someone was like, "Oh, that that plant that's going to be our sacred plant." That's how it started, you know. Like, uh, or I imagine that's how it started. I don't really know. Um, So I think we can do that too, and we can find um, beauty and and, um, connection and grow culture. just by playing around and practicing and passing it on.
0: So yeah, wow. Um, very amazing. i, w- I was wondering if you could talk more about um rites of passage. Um curious, yeah. maybe people listening uh don't quite understand what that means, but um wondering if you can provide support context and kind of open open that that up a little bit.
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah. So rites of passage were, you know, throughout the world at certain stages of our life. Um of a humans and child's life there were rituals and ceremony that the that the village would partake in to signify a transition so um the rite of passage you know rites of passage work that i do it's going from children children uh, boys is who i work with into adolescence so around that 12 or 13 year old gap right our age puberty starts kicking in a lot of changes start happening um So it's, you know, around the world, people say, okay, we're going to do something to signify this change. And you are no longer a boy, right? You are now an adolescent, and you're working towards being and when you turn 18, now you are a man, right? So like the modern day rites of passage, at best, you know, we might like our driver's license, that's kind of a rite of passage in our common world. Um, Maybe prom or going to college or, having sex for the first time, these are kind of unconscious, unintentional rites of passage. Um, One of the phrases that I've heard, and I've lived myself is, if we don't, if we aren't given a rite of passage from our village, then we will create our own. And in order for the transition to really happen, it almost has to be a, a death, right? For the adolescent to be born a boy has to die that boy has can no longer be a boy and with that if we don't in, initiate those boys they're going to seek out near death experiences to feel that transition themselves right so this sometimes they say like they'll burn the village down to feel its warmth you know they will destroy themselves they'll drive fast cars they'll do the drugs they'll get blackout drunk every night in college because they are trying to kill this part of themselves. They're trying to recreate that initiation. And, you know, I kind of did this with myself. My example was like, I turned like 21 and I was like, something feels wrong. And I just need to go in the woods for like a long time, you know? And so I was like, I went up to the upper peninsula of Michigan. was just like, I'm just going to hike for like a month, you know? And like, got my ass kicked and like, you know, like got bit by mosquitoes and like ran out of food. and was just like struggling because I was doing it by myself, right? It's not meant to be done alone. Um, and the important part is that other people witness you in that change to help to help it really sink into your your psyche. So, yeah, so these rites of passage are essential parts where it's like, oh, OK, I'm no longer a child because I remember that moment that that elder told me and I crossed the threshold and I was like, no longer am I a child. And it does something in our minds and our emotional bodies and our psyches um, that we're because we're just meant to do that kind of stuff. So. So adolescence, going into adulthood, becoming a mother or a father, these were all like rites of passage. There would be ceremonies, particularly for those moments of life, becoming an elder. Death is the ultimate rite of passage, um, birth. Um, and so we've lost a lot of these. And so my work um, that I work with adolescents in North Carolina, um, you know, we 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 try to build something and and to create a moment in time so these boys can remember, like, Oh, I'm no longer a child. I need to start helping out with the chores at home or <laughs> whatever it looks like in their family to now be an adolescent and not be just a child. So.
0: Wow, mind blown. Um have you ever <laughs> have you read the book Iron John by Robert Bly? For sure. Yeah, man. Wow, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Speak? Yeah, I everything you were saying, I th- I think that was like the most life-changing book that I ever read and I and I yeah. think it c- came into my possession maybe like when I was like 28, 29. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's 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 so incredible. Like, you're so right. Like, we kind of have these like pseudo rites of passages throughout, mm-hmm. you know, our modern lives, right? Like, yes, maybe getting to high school, like you said, getting your driver's license, going to college. I like, I, I remember when I graduated high school and like I'm going through the, the ceremony and then like it was over, everyone cheered. Then I was just like, oh my God, I just feel this like, sinking hole inside of myself like what like what am i supposed to do now like yes i know i'm going (laughs) to college but like i like lived my whole life to get to this moment and like it felt like i was like walking through a gate alone kind of thing it's like a feeling i couldn't even describe but um yeah i i i feel like fast forward when i was 24 that was when i actually went to go live in south america um I, i wanted to kind of like plant roots in my like latin american uh, heritage Mm -hmm. and um i was volunteering on a farm outside of lima in the mountains and this is a funny story um the owner of the farm his name was rodolfo and the best way i can the best way i can describe him was he was the mr miyagi of peru like you would have loved him like nice i showed up on this farm and i'm like you know oh hey like are you the owner he's like oh um no, like I mean, these people live here too. They're the owners, I guess. You know, like just kind of you asked him a question, he answered with like a deeper question.
1: Yeah, the like Yoda of you know, of your journey.
0: Yeah. And honestly, like I've never met someone in my life that has a deeper connection to like nature than than he did. Mm-hmm. And um, he was always talking about this this like peak in of the of the mountain called Markowasi. Mm-hmm. And um he would talk about how he would take people up the mountain as like a healing journey. People would heal their cancer, their diabetes, their bipolar. You know, the list went on, but he would always talk about it. And then one day I was just like, hey, man, are you going to take us there or not? Like, <laughs> let's do this, you know? <laughs> and um, it, it was a really incredible journey. Like where I'm kind of going with this is like, I think part of especially for for men and boys, is like a big part of going through the rite of passages like leaving the protection of their mom right i mm-hmm. knew uh, sure. robert bly talked about that a lot in the book and uh, this whole journey kind of made me realize like how all of my decision making was like whether or not like my mom would approve <laughs> you know yeah totally and she she didn't want me to go to south america for so long in the first mm-hmm. place but um to make a very long story short like rodolfo took us and uh uh, there's we're a group of six. Um, him, our neighboring farmer, uh, me, another volunteer from France, and then two um Peruvians from the city of Lima. They like lived in the city, but they were friends of the farm. And we started walking up the mountain, and like it was really funny because like we kept walking, and there kept being more of a gap between like Rodolfo and Julio, who was the neighboring farmer, and then like the four of us. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, like they'll stop at some point. You know so we catch up but they did not stop like they it just kept getting longer and longer and then like it started getting dark and oh my god like we were all looking at each other like what is happening right now like you know oh we can't find them we lost we basically lost them and we're like we need to turn back so we don't get lost and like i said long story short we decided to continue and um By like a stroke of luck, we ended up finding them again. Or maybe maybe I should go into a little a a little more like. Yeah, go Yeah, Yeah. What happened was is that, yeah, we we got lost. Everyone's kind of panicking. My Boy Scout instincts start to kick in because it's dark and we find this like little abandoned hut. And I convince everybody I'm like, guys, like, hey, we should just kind of like huddle in here and like sleep here for tonight because like we don't know where we are. You know, we're just following this road up this mountain, like, let's just chill. And everyone's like, okay, cool. And we, the four of us like huddle into this little abandoned hut. And I just like start to close my eyes and like try to doze off to sleep. And as I'm doing that, I'm just kind of like, Adolfo, man, like, where are you? Like, Mm -hmm. come on, like, we, you know, don't leave us hanging. We need to find you, right? And as like the moment that I remember, at the moment I like fell asleep, I instantly like felt like a jolt inside of me that was like, no, we need to keep walking because wow. like Rodolfo kept saying like just on this journey don't stop because if you stop you're like gonna get cold and catch a chill and that can be bad what so um and yeah by the way this was this was a three-day trek up this mountain right it took three days we walked from like a thousand feet above sea level to fourteen thousand feet holy shit yeah so all of a sudden i just like felt this deep intuitive thing like no we need to keep going so i like wake everybody up i'm like <laughs> guys, come on, let's, we got to continue. And everyone's like, are you crazy, man? You just convinced us to like, (laughs) you know, camp out for the night. Yeah. He just told us not to. Yeah. So we're like, arguing, going back and forth? But finally, like I convinced everybody like, no, let's keep walking. And I think we like hiked through the thickest fog I've ever seen in my life in this mountain for like two, three hours. And we can't see a thing except for like in the very far distance, like light poles, like with lights on them. We don't, and we didn't know like what we were walking into. I was like, Maybe this is a military camp. (laughs) We shouldn't be here, you know what I mean? Like, But um, we start walking towards the lights and then all of a sudden these just like two shadows are like reflecting off of the the light in the fog. And it was just like this very intense moment. Like, oh my God, we don't know who's approaching us right now. Like what's going to happen? And we're all just kind of like, hey, we see you. Like show yourself, show yourself. And like, then who walks through the fog? Rodolfo and Julio what and we're like oh my god like this is crazy and and we're all like ecstatic and we're just like oh my god we didn't know where to go and Rodolfo was like oh no i knew you guys would find us like he was just very like no you <laughs> needed this like this was part of it you know like yeah and he was that kind of guy it was like nothing came easy with him right and like like i said if, if my mom knew that this dude just left his tie and dry she would get yeah. down here and like kick his ass right
1: <laughs> yeah totally good <laughs> thing mom wasn't on that mountain <laughs>
0: Adolfo's yeah yeah,
1: bruised well yeah that's I mean that's a beautiful I mean, literally like you're hitting all the points of the you know of Joseph Campbell's like the hero's journey, right and all these epic stories that we follow, like Star Wars and Harry Potter and all that, they're all following the same trajectory and like you named so many of these of these points of the hero's journey, and that's like kind of the the natural progression that these rituals and rites of passage often take. You need to go into the descent. You need to go in the darkness. You need to face the fear. You know, you need to have mis- like a mystical mentor helper give you speaking riddles, you know, and like <laughs> also have faith in you of like, oh, you're going to make it, you're going to be fine. But you have to separate, you know, the separation mm-hmm. is key. So you can just go into the descent. But for example, you know, we were talking about domestication earlier. And it's like, well, if we really don't want these, you know, boys and Un um, you know, uninitiated men ruling the world because it's just a whole bunch of boys, you know. It's like making horrible decisions, not for the greater mm-hmm. good, but making selfish decisions for themselves. They're boys running this, this whole show. And how do we undomesticate them? Well, we need rites of passage to say you are not a boy anymore, and you are it's not all about you. Here's the whole village watching you right do this thing, and you're going to, when you become older, you're going to help the boys, you know, become adolescents too. So Um, this is one way to undo domestication and it ties into another thing we were talking about, which is death and facing our own deaths. And so it's like, if we can face these many deaths in our life, then we can be better at facing death in general and facing the unknown, right? Facing this like shadow thing that we don't know. And instead of running away from the unknown, whether it be hard feelings or, you know, making the right choice for, for the village, um, we can stand with it and be with death and with uncertainty, then we can hopefully make better choices um, for ourselves and, and this world. So.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah. You said it. Yeah. The, the world is is ruled by boys, not men (laughs) or girls, not women. Um, And yeah, it's a problem. And like I said, like, I think this whole conversation is just to draw awareness to that, right? Like maybe people were living their lives, like not knowing this is kind of like the greater context of humanity. I know I did. Totally. Um, Yeah. yeah. I mean, what
1: what stories, what positive stories do we have? Like, where do we learn about this, about these ways of life and like how essential they were to our health and our wellness as a, as a individual, as a community and as a like planet. Right. So that's why I like, that's why I teach these things. People, you know, I am a survivalist. Like I have gone in the woods and, you know, gone on TV and like, starved and survived and done that but is that really what survival is in our modern times not in my opinion right like what's actually killing us sadness depression you know lack of health um lack of community you know like so this is mod this is why I call it holistic survival schools because I'm teaching survival skills it's just not the way that people think about survival and so um yeah that's kind of the whole gist of what I'm trying to do with my school
0: yeah and I think it's incredible. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think you alluded to in our email chains that w- you were on like a very popular survival show, right? Yeah. Was it, was it Naked and Afraid? Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: Done, uh, done Naked and Afraid three different times. So,
0: wow. Yeah. I, I, I would love to hear more about that. Um, <laughs> I've seen a show a handful of times and I'm like, wow, this is, this is intense. But, um, yeah. What, what was your experience like doing that? Oh man. I mean, it was, it
1: was, it was lots of things, you know, like. I I kind of, I kind of feel like I often don't bring up Naked and Afraid because I feel a little embarrassed about the show, <laughs> not embarrassed about how I acted on it or anything like that, but just the show itself, like the premise of the show, like it's very, you know, me, man versus nature. Can you survive, you know, competition kind of vibes. And that's great. Like nature has competition in it. There's no doubt in my mind that that's part of nature. Um, but for me, you know, I want to really spread the message that actually our ancestors lived really well and that, you know, what I'm doing on Naked Afraid going and living 21 days in the woods with one other person butt naked with like a knife, you know, that's very not human, actually. I always say it's like the most human thing I've ever done and the least human thing I've ever done because they drop they dropped me in Africa twice, you know, and I was in Colombia for 40 days. And these are Very different environments. And they pretend that, like, oh, you're a survivalist, so you know how to live here. I'm like, no, like, what? This is all about indigenous life ways. So, people in the past in South Africa would grow up in a village that's complete and they'd grow up playing games that helped them practice their hunting skills. They'd watch their uncles and their dads, you know, hunt and shoot a bow. And so it was just like second nature to them. They just knew what to do. You drop, you know, my naked ass in the woods and I don't know anything, I don't know any plants. Like, this is really hard. Um, so in some ways, I'm like, ooh, a little cringy at like how they present, you know, um connecting to the natural world. And I like intense things. I like pushing myself, and it was definitely an initiation for me as you know, um, practicing the skills, practicing what I preach, practicing my spirituality, like, you know, okay, like go, go do it, go connect to the animals, go connect to the landscape. and so, you know, my 21 days I did alone in South Africa was the most spiritual thing I've ever done in my life. Um, you know, fasting for, you know, until I find food I'm not eating. So I literally, you know, ate like a squirrel and a turtle for like, that was all I had for like 10 days. And I'm like, you know, starting, and I'm like kind of tripping. I'm in this trance state. I'm hunting, I'm watching hunting impala. Like I have, I have like a full like three hour story about this hunt and, um, And it's not in the episode, like the episode looks totally different because that's what TV wanted to show. And what my journey was like was like the most spiritual, profound, deep thing I've ever been a part of. Um, And, you know, I've, you know, I ended up, yeah, you know, taking the life of two Impala with a bow that I made, you know, after hunting and failing for, you know, days and days and days and like praying and going in trance states with these Impala and the Impala becoming me, like all the stuff that I read about in books and Native American and, you know, indigenous wisdom around the world. Like I lived it for a while, thanks to TV, you know, like it's such a mind, mind trip to just be like, this is the only chance I get to live like really ancestrally is to go on a TV show. (laughs) like like, that was the most wild i've ever felt and i was like wow i'm on a tv show doing this so it's a lot of everything you know there's a lot of um a lot of feelings in there and a lot of cool stuff and a lot of stuff that's like yeah it's not my favorite so it but um but overall i'm so happy i did it and it challenged me and pushed me and um i got to live the skills um really hardcore for a short while
0: well yeah i think if anything it's uh um social proof that you you can hack it out there
1: yeah totally totally (laughs) And that's like the funny thing is people are like oh don't you get a lot of students because of that and i'm like no not really like you know like it's a cool little fact they learn later like yeah Yeah. stuff works and luke can do it but um it's not really what the majority of what i'm teaching most of the time so
0: yeah and it's so funny too how like yes like even yeah something is like putting on a tv show around this topic it's like it's always skewed in a way Mm. that's just fun and exciting and it's kind of mm-hmm. neglecting all the substance so I, mm-hmm. I i know so many people kind of feel that way with a lot of you know what's happening on tv and stuff like that um and two like yeah if this was a if they really wanted to capture i guess you know the essence of being a wild human too i guess it would it would happen more of like a group setting right because 99 percent of the time hunter gatherers didn't go out hunting by themselves unless they were on some sort of like of passage right they right. do it in a big group
1: Totally. Yeah. It's so much easier hunting in a group than it is all by yourself. And, you know, so yeah, that's once again, what we're meant to do. So yeah, a true. A true ancient human show would be like, yeah. Watching indigenous people in the great lakes region, harvesting rice together and like hanging out and doing rice camp for like two weeks, you know, like really cool in my opinion, but probably not what most TV watchers want to see.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And two like, a too. like you just being I mean when you were on the show was that your first time in Africa or in Colombia
1: um first time in Colombia yep I had, that was my first time in South America um I actually went on a saf- uh, safari when I was like 10 and I went to Kenya and I was like super fortunate uh, to go with my grandpa and my dad and that was really really cool so um so that was my second time in Africa second and third time
0: hmm yeah. But uh, I mean, like to expect anyone to be able to like, okay, go thrive in this ecosystem. You've never stepped foot in before. is like, <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. It's
1: ridiculous. Like I literally talked to like, you know, people in Hollywood or LA or whatever, they're like pitching the show. And they're like, go to South America. And I'm like, well, where is it? And they're like, it's, you know, somewhere in, somewhere in Brazil. And I'm like, could you be more specific? You know, <laughs> and they're, like, Well, you know, I'm like, who lived there? Like what were the, who are the indigenous people that do live there or used to live there? And they're like, well, I don't know. And I'm like, There's, you know, like, just because it's wild, quote unquote, doesn't mean it's like livable. Like, I think there's this misrepresentation that people just lived in the wild, untended un, you know, untended land. And it's like, no, like, especially in the jungle, there are parts of the jungle that humans don't want to live because it's inhospitable if like during particular seasons, or if they haven't tended the land, the bugs are so bad, you know, I'm like... The savanna, like I'm a little more open to that. Throw me in any savanna. I'll probably have a fighting chance because we are a savanna species as humans. Right. Like wherever we go, we like pretty much recreate the savanna Um, ancient cultures in South America, you know, cut a lot of trees down. And when you go to the jungle, I'm just like, I'm just not built for this, like dengue fever and all these like nasty, you know, just so much dampness and wetness. It's just like I'm just not built for that so we people humans had to work really hard at living in south america and tending the land um besides like really small hunter-gatherer tribes but even them they clear out a whole bunch of trees so they could get sunlight and like you know have a little place to grow some food and um so yeah so it's it's silly how much hollywood simplifies wilderness and primitive skills like they're incredibly complex and location-based skills. And I think it's just, that's part of my job is trying to educate people on that. You know, like people will send out a message like I want to do a private class and in one day I want to learn hide tanning and bow building. And and I'm like, whoa, 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 (laughs) like each one of these is a lifetime of knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, And it's dependent on where you are too. All those skills change. So how you tan a hide east of the Mississippi is very different than how you tan a hide west of the Mississippi, for example, you know, like, or can be. Um, So just little nuances like that, trying to teach people how, you know, to be more realistic or to paint a new image of what these skills actually mean.
0: Yeah. Wow. So true. And, um, you know, um, I, I think we're sadly coming up on our time here for the episode, mm-hmm. but I will say we're definitely going to have you on again because there's so much more I want to jump into. <laughs> All but- right. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah, exactly. I love it. Um, but in closing, something I kind of wanted to like chat about briefly is like, um, I think at the beginning of the show, we kind of said, you know, yeah, like, you know, we're modern humans, we think now is the best time to be alive just because it's now and we're here. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, this conversation we just had is kind of exploring all of the benefits we can get from um, learning ancestral skills and ancestral life ways, but too, like, you know in this journey too, like, I I know people who do have like deep roots in indigenous cultures, or um, people on this journey, there's this kind of feeling of like, shame or embarrassment too, like, because these people have been oppressed, you know, and I I can share a personal story is that um, in Bolivia, um, my step cousin, who's the uh, nephew of my stepmom. He he also has like very deep roots in in indigenous culture his mom um she's Bolivian but her descendants kind of come from Europe and his Mm -hmm. dad his descendants are the indigenous Bolivians Mm -hmm. and he never got to connect with those aspects of his life because it's very even in Bolivia it's like very looked down upon you know they're they're still very oppressed people and um when I went to go live down there and you know we were chatting I was telling him all about like all this rewilding stuff, learning and how like the reason why I came down here is because I want to, you know, connect with indigenous culture and learn more about it. And I I was telling him about when I was volunteering on the farm in Peru and then what I was doing there in Bolivia. And he was like so shocked. He was like, you know, wow, I I can't believe like you're interested in this. And I didn't know it at the time until years later. But um, later when he moved to the U.S., we kind of met up and hung out and he told me he's like, hey, ever since that moment that we were chatting about that, I went to go live with my grandfather in the mountains in the Altiplano wow. and learn, you know, these life ways. And it's really connected me to, to this. And like, I feel so much better, you know, like and proud mm. of, of where I come from. And um, yeah, I, I just wanted to share that because I hope that um, too, you know, in this conversation that, you know, we, we're able to restore some of that for for people that do, uh, that are, you know, have a heritage in that or, you know, just for people like you and me to not see it as this thing that just kind of looked down upon or inferior to, you know, white Western culture. So I I think that's what's most important to me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. How do we as you know, if if we are, you know, European descendant, how can we be allies for those indigenous cultures? Because, you know, the grief that I feel of not having it, it's like, oh, that makes me want to be even a better ally to the cultures that are still surviving this like You know, dominator culture world we live in. And it's like, Mm -hmm. oh, like, I want to protect and help these people continue their life ways, you know? And that might mean like, you know, interacting and and hanging out with them, or it might mean like leaving them the hell alone, you know? Like, they could could look a lot of ways, but actually asking those people in those cultures, like, how can we help you? How can we be an ally to maintaining this culture? Um, Not necessarily, you know, for our benefit, but just to help them, you know? And, um, but yeah, that's a beautiful story. I'm glad. I'm glad you got to share that with him. And I'm glad you got to like go hang out with grandpa because yeah, that's, that's something I wish, you know, we all had access to those, those skills and that knowledge of a location and place and, and culture. So it's beautiful.
0: Yeah, yeah, right on. And yeah, man, thank you for sharing all your stories too. Like, wow. Um, it's just so refreshing to meet another human. That's like, we're on the same page. And I think we're, we're kind of cut from the same cloth there. Yeah, Um, a lot of residents. Yeah. If you ever find yourself in northeastern Pennsylvania, hit me up. You know, we'll (laughs) we'll geek out and uh, I love that and we'll go uh, chill in the woods. Um, But cool. Yeah. Before we kind of sign off here, um, how can people find you and and connect with you?
1: Yeah holistic survival school.com is my website. Um, I post mostly on Instagram, like more regularly. So I think my handle there is Luke dot holistic survival school school. Um, but I think it's on my website as well. So that's one way. Um, my applications for my program for my 10 month immersion program are open right now. They're open through the fall and winter. So, um, it's a 10 month program called deep remembering, um, and if you're interested in that you can go to the website to check it out but um yeah it's a really really beautiful awesome program here in Asheville so people can connect with me there
0: great yeah and I don't doubt it um awesome yeah man thanks again and like I said um we'll, we'll have you back on again soon and we'll include links to all of your your goodies uh in the show notes
1: yeah awesome thanks Neil it's been, been a blast has been fun and talking thanks thanks for having me
0: oh it's a pleasure right on Alrighty, thoughts, comments, concerns? Uh, let us know by leaving a rating and review of the show on whatever platform you listen to the song. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Um, I think it's undeniable that Luke is a very deep person and has a very strong connection to the natural world. And if you're interested in learning, how you can have the same and you want a hands-on experience, then definitely head over to his uh, website and check out the course that he's offering that's starting soon. Again, it's holisticsurvivalschool.com slash immersion. And yeah, I had a blast this episode. Thanks for joining us as always. And we'll be back soon with some really exciting guests. Until then, if you live on the East Coast, make sure your driveway is shoveled and you salted so nobody falls and hurt themselves just kidding but not really until next time